and welcome to Anime Audio Commentary. Today I'll be commenting on episode 4 of Gunbuster. If you'd like to watch along, then start watching now. So, last we left off, things were pretty serious. You know, those space monsters had essentially destroyed a star. You know, they, they took a young star and aged it considerably. And based on what the scientist is saying, that's how they reproduce. So it seems like things are particularly dire, given that the sun, the Earth orbits, is uh, a particularly young star. Although it would seem that this is not the end-all, be-all. You know, this guy seems to think that for whatever reason, these aliens are bent on getting rid of mankind. And he likens it to humankind being bacteria and the aliens being like white blood cells or the immune system. That's a pretty nihilistic approach in my mind and i think it's interesting it's kind of take that whole like you know humans are the virus kind of thing you know humans are the disease plaguing everything but not in the sense that you know mother earth is going after humanity it's kind of that the galaxy or the universe as a whole is doing it instead so it really puts in perspective i guess the scale of things and how small humanity is in the grand cosmic scheme of things. But even when you consider how small bacteria is to the human body, you know, the immune system still goes after it. So back to the more drama-related stuff. Things aren't going well with the girls. You know, Noriko... She's been effectively sidelined. You know, Cosme's not really associating with her, and that's kind of made her a bit of an outcast. You know, while all the other girls are basically lazing around, sunbathing and stuff like that, and under artificial lights, she's training with the coach. You know, this kind of goes in line with her oath that she swore, that she wanted to train and do whatever it takes to be as good as possible. Now, I can't help but draw a couple comparisons to a couple later Gynax works. Because on the one hand, Shinji never really reached this point in Evangelion. He would often be afraid and grudgingly get in the robot but he was never truly dedicated to learning to use the Evangelion as best as possible. Similarly, Simon in Gurren Lagann, he, he went into a real funk about halfway through. And he was eventually able to snap out of it. In similar fashion to how Noriko did. But he didn't really trained to pilot Gurren Lagann either, you know. At least in Gurren Lagann, it's more of an instinctual thing.
So Jung is, um, I guess, kind of interfering with Noriko. You know, she seems to be jealous of Noriko and her special treatment from the coach, but she doesn't really, I don't think, understand the true dynamics of what's going on here. So she's kind of taking the approach of the bully from the first episode, where she thinks there's something... Something like favoritism, if not nepotism, going on, and she doesn't particularly like it. So, you know, she's throwing down the gauntlet. Let's have a little duel, you know. If nothing else, she kind of wants to prove she's the better pilot, and therefore the coach's faith in Noriko is misplaced. And considering they are you know, essentially on the same side, you know, humanity against aliens. This seems like a real short-sighted and selfish thing to do. Especially considering they're they're going out into, like, actual space to do this. You know, like, accidents happen in space. If you lose pressure in that thing, like, you will get sucked out through a pinhole and it'll be a horrible, horrific experience. Of course, that all aside, it seems like Noriko hasn't really recovered from what happened with Smith in the previous episode. Yeah, I can't really blame her. I'd imagine I'd be pretty terrified of space, just on principle, not even considering something horrible had happened to me. So notably, Kazumi, despite not really wanting much to do with Noriko, she still just smacks Jung across the face for her insolence. You know, I guess, if nothing else, she still does care a little bit, even if she doesn't really show it. So I find it very interesting that, you know, nobody's really addressing the big elephant in the room here in that, you know, she's essentially suffered losing a loved one. One would think at the very least there'd be some kind of shrink on hand to address the trauma from the battle. So once again, Coach is really just laying down the law here. You know, Kazumi's sort of appealing to him to not, or rather to cut Noriko loose, but he's saying, you know, nope, nope, Gunbuster is designed for her and for you. You're both needed. I can't just get rid of her. And as a matter of fact, I won't be doing that. He's gruff, but... I think he means well, and his earnestness is refreshing. I 
Now, of course, Kazumi raises a good point here. You know, if Noriko is so terminally afraid, how can she actually go out into space? You know, if she can't take care of herself, how can she save others? Coach has an interesting response, essentially being, you know, if you spill milk, you just pour some more. And that's that's kind of a metaphorical statement, but it seems to me that it's kind of along the lines of you have to break a couple eggs to make an omelet, you know. In his mind, it would seem that Noriko is somewhat expendable. I think that's a rather horrible attitude to take, but given how it seems like humanity is potentially facing extinction, you know, sometimes you have to do horrible things. So once again, we see that Noriko's really fixated on Smith and all that. You know, even though there wasn't much screen time between them, you know, I think this is really meant to drive home that this was a really big deal for her. You know, they're headed back to Earth, and Noriko, like, she's kind of resolved herself to go to Smith's hometown and meet his mom and all that. I guess as... A nice gesture rather than anything else. So it seems like this voyage to Earth is not entirely a safe one. You know, both the coach and the captain hope to avoid using Gunbuster, but it seems like there is a definite possibility they might have to if things get hairy. You know, that's really not a good sign considering Gunbuster's still experimental and Coach himself admitted that there is still testing and diagnostics that need to be run on it. You know, it really doesn't pay to use machinery that hasn't been properly vetted. That's how you get horrible industrial accidents. So I think they're really trying to make things suspenseful by showing like the, the dark, quiet ship as it drifts through the warp. You know, I say that and then instantly the ship is attacked. You know, how about that? Jinxed it again. So it would seem that the aliens are, uh, they're not playing fair. Despite being in warp space, the aliens have somehow managed to hit the ship, which the captain seems assured they can't do due to Newtonian mechanics not really applying anymore. So it seems like the aliens are either on an entirely different technological level 
or they've got some sort of biological adaptation that allows them to do stuff in subspace that you wouldn't normally be able to. It seems like the crux of the issue is that radar doesn't work in subspace. So locating things is a bit of a tricky matter. So it seems like things are really, really bad. You know, they've left subspace right nearby the Earth. And in doing so, the captain says they've effectively painted a target on it. You know, the aliens are chasing them. They've popped out right nearby Earth. The aliens are like, ooh, there's a planet of things we don't like. That is not good, decidedly. But it seems like there's really not much they can do about it now except make a fight of things. So I say make a fight of things, but considering only 12% of the fleet made it out of subspace safely, uh, things are looking really dire. You know, supposedly they were a big fleet and all of the littler ships, which I assume are... You know, the destroyers compared to the aircraft carriers. Like, they're all destroyed. Presumably costing a whole bunch of robots and lives as well. Decidedly not good. Alright, so this is where things get interesting. Norco has been effectively sidelined. One of the other pilots is having an issue with the gyroscope in her robot, so the coach orders her to take Noriko's instead. You know, the way Noriko is taking it, it's almost like a punishment. You know, she's being left behind while all her friends and acquaintances are venturing back out into the void of space. Presumably to die, considering they're facing a much larger force. You know, that's almost the worst possible thing, being forced to stay behind while all your friends go to face potential death. You know, regardless of how afraid she is of space and space combat, I'd imagine facing it head-on would be better than sitting around. So the captain's going to make a bit of a gamble here. Hopefully, if they can take out the largest of the ships, that'll sort of, I guess, break the morale of the others. You know, maybe, hopefully, these aliens have some sort of sentience or sapience like that. You know, they blast with all sorts of armament, but it doesn't really seem to do much other than irritate the alien. So that's it then. Seemingly they launched a full salvo of their biggest missiles and that's done little more than aggravate things. I guess from the captain's perspective all they can really do at this point is 
fight bravely and die honorably. So now we get like a really good look at the aliens, and they're very crustacean-like. I think they've got an interesting design. Like, they are literally like crabs. They've got, like, pincers and all that stuff. So back to Noriko. She really is suffering terribly. You know, she she's feeling exactly like I thought she probably would, that, you know, being sidelined is in her mind, even worse, you know, in all likelihood, everyone's going to die and she'll be left all alone. And she'll, in all likelihood, die in her bunk as a coward and a fool who did nothing to avert this fate. And indeed, she's not totally wrong, you know, we saw someone getting torn apart So things are bad. The ship's taking all kinds of damage too. Radar's being knocked out. Like things are getting really, really bad. But this is where we hit an inflection point. Something in Noriko has finally snapped. And, you know, she says it herself. You know, the old me has died and now, you know, I'm doing this on my terms. And, you know, I, I think that's very interesting that she said that, especially while simultaneously honoring the memory of Smith. You know, she's essentially said that she died along with him. Now, at this point, things are so bad that the captain feels he has no choice but to ram the ship into the enemy flagship in a suicide attack. You know, the last-ditch effort to protect the Earth. But it seems like they've all conveniently forgotten one thing. And here we go. I love this soundtrack right here. It is equal parts absolutely foreboding and triumphant it, it really doesn't get much better than this and then you have that iconic pose of gunbuster folding its arms like th this is this is noriko turning a corner here without any authorization or anything like that she has started piloting gunbuster of her own accord and she means to solve things Notably, uh, Coach backs her decision when the captain says, you know, hey, what's going on here? You can't just sortie without permission. Now, I really like the way the animated gunbuster slowly lifting off the deck. It really displays the immense weight and bulk of the gunbuster, considering it's Pretty darn gigantic, especially compared to the other robots. But it's just the immense weight and power of it is really evident in how slowly it moved at first. 
And just the way it drifts through space amongst the other robots and all the debris. You know, I think that's something that's lost in a lot of other animation. You know, they, they don't... They don't really animate in a way that implies the true weight of things. So, as immensely powerful as Gunbuster is, you know, it's not getting things its own way. The enemy flagship is blindingly fast. But I guess for what it's worth, they seem to be fighting at a stalemate. The only issue, of course, is that Gunbuster is running on a limited power supply. So once again, I think the soundtrack is really excellent here. It really conveys, I guess, the melancholy of Noriko. Now, everyone thinks that she's basically going to commit suicide here by catching the alien and killing it. And they're not entirely wrong. You know, she's essentially banking on the fact that Gunbuster is tough enough to take this thing head-on and catch it so it stops zipping around so she can finally kill it. fantastic you know whether she's died in the attempt or not she did in fact manage to kill the alien so despite as much stuff as they lost you know humanity will at least survive you know one would think that it's almost like, a decided victory for humanity. They've managed to drive off the aliens, and yeah, they lost a lot of people and ships. But they've proven that Gunbuster is a weapon that can stand up to them. You know, I think it's remarkable... Like, just that one act of bravery was enough to sort of resolve so many different things. You know, Noriko voyaged out into space, faced her fears, she was resolved to die, but managed to live. She's earned the admiration of basically everyone. You know, even Coach is smiling, and he never smiles. Man, if ever there was an unequivocal good ending to an episode, I think it would surely be this.
Last but not least, we have the science segment. So it seems like this segment is on the aliens themselves and I guess what their deal is. So as is typical, Noriko doesn't really know much about them aside from what they've done recently. That and I guess their relative size. So I think this gives a nice little scale for what's going on here. You know, a human is about 2 meters tall. The RX-7 robot's about 10. Alien's about 100 meters. And then Gunbuster's about 250 meters. So, you know, things get very big in pretty short order. So now you get to the Exelon class, along with the aliens and all that. So, the largest alien, that being a mothership type, is on the order of hundreds of kilometers. So that's a pretty darn large thing, you know. I'd imagine that starts to border on, like, small planetoids. Alright, well that's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, then by all means, tune in for the next one. See you, Space Cowboy.